Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And today I'm joined by thoracic medical oncologist, Dr. Thomas John from Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Melbourne, Australia, to learn a little about his career path and his perspective on lung cancer care in Australia. Dr. John is a physician scientist who did much of his training in Melbourne. He received his medical degree from Monash University and his PhD at the University of Melbourne. He was a senior clinical research fellow and translational oncologist at the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Center before moving down the road to Peter Mac. He's an active clinical investigator involved in drug development his focus is on thoracic malignancies, including lung cancer and mesothelioma. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for, uh, for the invitation. Tom, you're an established expert in, in lung cancer and clinical research. You were very active in the development of many drugs like entrectinib in the Ignita Star Trek trials, which is where I think we first collaborated. More recently, one of the key investigators in the Adora trial. And congratulations, by the way, on the New England Journal publication. But I'd love to hear about how you started off. And maybe we can start with what led you to focus on lung cancer? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. It's, uh, it's a question I come back to myself. I think uh, initially my research in- interests were, were fostered by, by a mentor, and I think many of them are the same. I, I worked with a uh, prominent clinician scientist who then encouraged me to do a PhD. He was a melanoma uh, expert, and so my PhD ended up being in melanoma, and it was at a time when there were very few therapeutic options, and you know, we were looking at uh, prognostic and uh, predictive biomarkers using gene microarrays uh, at the time. And as I kept going uh, through with my PhD, I, I realized how amazingly enjoyable it was. And the fact that you could you know, take a clinical question into the lab and try and find a solution to that question. And over time, I, I really felt I wanted to you know, continue that side of things and continue with both basic and, and translational research. But my real interest was, was in lung cancer. And uh, despite you know, doing a PhD in melanoma and my PhD actually went quite well. I, I ended up uh, with a, an oral presentation at ASCO, and I met a lot of the prominent sort of melanoma researchers at the time. And despite that, uh, I still came back to lung cancer, which uh, was really largely, I think, about the patient group. Um, I don't know what you think, Stephen. I'm very interested in knowing what other people's, what drew other people to thoracic oncology, but that certainly was my the thing that got me into it was just the patient group. I think it's a, it's a group of patients, you know, who are over in general, a great group of people to, you know, to be involved with, to help and, and knowing that there are very few therapeutic options. But then at the time when I started, there were sort of glimmers of hope that some things uh, could work. I think these sorts of, these sorts of glimmers are what keeps uh, researchers interested. Would you say the same thing, Stephen? Do you think? Yeah, I really would. I, I think that you know what you're describing. I have a very similar answer myself. You know, this is a very lethal cancer, and 
These are relationships you have that are formed under very intense circumstances. And, and there's something about those relationships. They're, they're really, they're really strong. And it's really sort of a privileged position to be in, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. At the time of completing my PhD, the targeted therapies were about to enter into lung cancer. And I, I went to work with a researcher called Francis Shepard and, and Ming Chow in Toronto. And they just published this uh, paper in the New England Journal of Medicine using a targeted therapy called elotinib. And that really solidified my interest in actually being able to work with them and being able to see how they did what they did and the questions that they were asking of their own data at the time really uh, fostered my, uh, my interest in, in the area as well. I mean, those are two giants in the field. What brought you out to Toronto and how did that, how did that occur? Yeah, it was sort of uh, serendipity. Francis actually came out to, to Australia to, to give a talk at one of our, uh, one of our symposia. And I had tried to approach her to talk to her at that point, but was unable to. She was, she was such a, um, if you've ever heard uh, Frances speak, she's an amazing uh, presenter and a very uh, concise, very focused. And I wanted to approach her and, and ask her about careers in, in, in oncology and, and lung cancer specifically, but I didn't really get the opportunity. So after she had left, I, uh, I sent an email to her just expecting not to hear anything. And um, she wrote straight back to me and said, yep, we have a, you know, we've got a fellowship program and, you know, what are your timelines? And yes, we're interested. And it just uh, went from there. So it was, it was pretty amazing. I find that the, the people, the faculty, um, the, the colleagues in lung cancer really are approachable, really are collaborative. And I almost feel like it's because there were so few advances for so many years uh, that we really learned to, to work together as a group. Yeah, I, I agree with that too, Stephen. I think in general, pretty much everyone I've met uh, in, the, in the lung cancer faculty have been so collaborative and collegiate and very easy to approach and talk to and are very open to, to any, uh, any ideas. And I think that really helps, you know, when, when you're, particularly when you're starting out to feel that you can approach anyone, you know, come up with any sort of idea and, and be able to actually have a platform to, to speak to people, um, you know, and, and not be shot down. I think that really helps. Now, you, you mentioned you were a, a physician scientist and you're on that pathway. Can you talk about the challenges in starting and maintaining a lab? Yeah, I think, you know, firstly, it's definitely not an easy path, but, you know, nothing good is. It's very rewarding, I think, to be able to take a problem, as I said, from the clinic and then move it into the lab and hopefully be able to change patient outcomes at the end of the day is a unique opportunity. There are discoveries, you know, waiting to be made. And I think that's really, you know, an exciting part of uh, having a lab and, and being able to ask questions within a lab environment. But uh, it, it's a struggle to, you know, keep your lab funded. There are many, many grant rejections. It's a tough gig to continue. And I think at least for us with medicine, there's a fallback. You know, our, my lab colleagues don't have that. So, you know, they work even harder to, to maintain their, their labs. And 
I um, completely admire them uh, for for the work that they do. And and really, you know, the the basic scientist needs a well, the basic science really grows from a, a collaboration between us as clinicians and um, and the scientists as well, because you know we can't do what they do, and and they can't do what we can do. And when you bring that together, that that works even better. And so my more recent sort of endeavours have been in fostering those relationships and trying to get so my, my more recent PhD students have both a lab researcher as, uh, as their co-supervisor with me so that hopefully we're bringing both elements to the um, thesis. Yeah, because when you're seeing patients in the clinic and you know, running a, a wet lab or a translational lab, you, know, you can't really split that down the middle. Right. I mean, that's not a 50 50 gig because, you know, I, I was always told if you do, you know, 50% in both, you'll kind of just do a mediocre job of both. Is that how you feel? Absolutely. I, I think many, uh, many clinician scientists feel that they're do one, one element of their, of their science suffers, be that the clinical or the, the laboratory science, because you can't do both effectively. And I strongly believe that as a clinician, and this was something Francis really taught me, as a clinician, you need to see patients. That's where your, the ideas come from. It's where the impetus for further research comes from. And so I think if you're, you're doing a solitary clinic or a, a very small sort of clinical program, then your science will inevitably suffer because you, you end up going down a, a very different sort of pathway on that angle but the reverse is true as well and and I think this is where we find it difficult where there are the more clinical medicine you do the more it sort of uh, takes over and it is very hard to do a 50-50 sort of type split in both clinical and, and laboratory science I think inevitably the clinical does overwhelm there are more urgencies in clinical medicine than there are in laboratory medicine. You can wait, you know, you can, you can wait in the lab, whereas the clinic, you've got to do what you need to do right away. So it takes over. I find my, my split, which ideally should be 50-50, sort of ends up being, you know, 70-30, uh, you know, 70 clinical, 30 lab. And that's just an inevitability of, uh, of how, things, how things run. And I think at the end of the day, I, so I used to fight that initially and say, gosh, you know, I need more lab time. But uh, I've come to accept that uh, the clinical element is, is actually critical anyway. And the trials spawn new ideas. They give us access to novel therapies. You know, all of those things are important. And as long as there's someone you can collaborate with in the lab to keep the lab side of things you know, up to date and on song, then it works. You know, that, that balance is different for everyone, and it's really hard to strike it. I received very similar advice early in my career from, uh, from Dan Von Hoff, who, who had, we were talking about protected time. I said, Steve, what are, you, what are you protecting yourself from? You know, I mean, if you're going to be a clinical investigator, you need to be in a clinic, because if, if you're doing you know, 90% of your work in your office, you're not going to know what questions to ask. You're not going to know what the problems are. It's for the patients, and so you need to be seeing patients if you really want to do clinical research. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's actually, you know, as you say, everyone does this differently, but that, that is sage advice. 
Now, early in your career, I know you received an IASLC fellowship grant. Can you tell us maybe about that work and how important those opportunities are for young investigators? Yeah, I think they're, they're critical. That fellowship for me was when I was in Toronto and it meant that, you know, the fellowships that they had were, were largely clinical fellowships, but getting a, uh, an ISLC fellowship meant that I could uh, focus more in the lab and do less clinical work. And my lab project was quite intense. It was doing uh, a PDX work, which uh, involves taking a, uh, a tumor from a patient, implanting it into an animal, growing it, and we were treating those animals with different therapies at the time. And they're very, very intensive experiments. You know, once you're doing, once you start one, you know, you're very much uh, engulfed in that ex- experiment for a couple of weeks. Um, very hard to do with, with a lot of clinics in the background. So the fellowship really uh, made a big difference uh, to me being able to, to continue that work. And f- furthermore, my, several of my, my students have, uh, have uh, been fortunate enough to receive the same fellowship and had, it's had the same impact on them. And it meant that they've been able to really focus uh, in on the lab and continue the lab side of things without uh, as much sort of interruption in the clinic. And when you're doing a PhD or a postdoc, you really do need to focus in the lab. That's sort of what you're, what you're, trying, to, what you're trying to achieve. Uh, and as a consequence of that, I always add a donation to the ISLC with my subscription uh, <laughs> because I think these programs are critical. And I think they nurture, you know, the next group of researchers. And I think um, they, they're really important in... Uh, uh, in, in the career paths of, uh, of our future researchers going forward. Yeah, I mean, the future is really bright. I'm really excited by a lot of the projects we see. They're just so, so fantastic. I think it just keeps getting elevated each year. Mm, definitely. Now, you've, you've since transitioned to you know, working in the lab, but also being a very successful clinical investigator. I know a lot of the recent trials you've worked on have been on genomically defined subsets of cancer, like the Adora with EGFR and Star Trek with NTRAC. I'd love to hear a bit about the current state of precision medicine in Australia. Yeah, it's um, we're we're at actually at a, an an exciting phase. I think I think the we've often lagged behind. Our our healthcare is is a public system, so we rely on government funding to establish um, a lot of uh, the programs that are built, and they are l- largely interested in cost benefit analysis. And as you know, you know, cost-benefit analysis in you know, running trials in s- small subsets of patients is always going to be uh, d- a difficult sell. But we know, and I- I'm a believer in you know, the, um, the use of you know, next-generation sequencing, the use of um, you know, finding these, uh, these small subpopulations because these targeted therapies make a, a massive difference. And working on those trials really taught me that. I'm, I'm sure you were the same, um, Stephen. You know, with NTRAC, you search high and low and you barely find a patient. But once you do, wow, you know, massive difference um, using those inhibitors compared to using, you know, chemotherapy, which is what we've traditionally used. So I think, you know, in Australia, we, um, I'm part of, I'm the, the chair of uh, the, the Thoracic Oncology Group Australia Scientific Committee, now known as TOGA, and we're f- 
quite fortunate to have um, secured funding to run a genomic study in lung cancer with various baskets based on, on those results. So that includes things like NTRAC and ROS1. And so therefore, you know, being able to access those therapies on the back of finding uh, the genomic rearrangement. And for us, really, that, that has been the big challenge. Even, even if you could you know, convince your pathology setup to, to run these, uh, these assays uh, where you find things like NTRAC, being able to have access to that next therapy, if you, if you don't have that, then what's the point? But I think things are certainly changing and... Um, uh, our uh, patient support groups are, are quite active in trying to lobby for more, uh, more funding towards uh, this sort of thing with uh, genomic testing and targeted therapy. So I think things are, are changing. And it's, it's very hard being on the doorstep of the US, you know, where my patients are interacting with support groups from, uh, that are linked to the US or to Europe. And they're coming to clinic and saying, why can't I have amivantamab or why can't I have the Loxo drug? People are a lot more connected and a lot more informed. Uh, and I think this is also changing how we, how we view these, um, these therapies. We're not being so paternalistic and saying, well, you know, there's no point doing the test because you can't access the therapy. We're now saying, well, let's do the test. If we find something, let's now find a way that we can access, you know, this this new treatment that looks that looks really good. So, I think you know we're sort of lucky in Australia that that we have um, you know the ability to run a lot of these uh, novel sort of genomic programs. But now also you know coming through that is the ability to actually uh, be able to funnel patients to the right targeted therapy based on that. I think in in part of your solution is really having the right trials open as well. I think that. You and your colleagues have done a great job with that. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that I guess, is serendipity. Um, I think, um, you know, we're, we're lucky that uh, some of the, the trial sponsors uh, have looked to Australia as a good trials uh, centre. I think we do conduct trials well. Um, we are good at finding uh, the right patient for the right trial. Um, so that serendipity is really helpful. It, it does actually pay off as well because at the end of the day, if you have a, a, a very active therapy, it will end up on our pharmaceutical benefit scheme, um, which will fund the drug. So there's no cost to the patient at that point in time. But there is a bit of a lag. Usually, it's several years before you know the trial, uh, following the completion of the trial, to when the actual therapy is available. But Yes, there, there's definitely some serendipity in, you know, the Star Trek studies, for example. I, I don't know how you came into the Star Trek trials, um, Stephen. It was, a, it was an interesting um, program for me. Um, I, 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 if I can tell the story, I actually was approached by, um, by the, uh, the CMO of, uh, of Igniter at the time. And uh, we met up in a pub in Melbourne. And he showed me his data. <laughs> um, he was in Melbourne um, for something completely unrelated, and and he basically came out and and I thought, gosh, this is this is the weirdest way to get into a trial. I've uh, I've never had uh, <laughs> I've never had that before, and I I'm not sure I'll have it have it again. But you know, we sat down in a pub. He showed me the data. You know, we had a beer. I said, wow, you know, this 
this looks like a really active compound. You know, we're certainly interested. Um, you know, let's uh, your people talk to my people, and and that's what happened. And the next thing, we were running the uh, the Star Trek trial, and it ended up being a great trial from the perspective of implementing that level of uh, uh, of next gen testing uh, in our institution, and then also having access to a to a targeted therapy. Well, is I your, think that, yeah, the 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 name itself really caught caught my attention, <laughs> and. and I, I believe that you need to have a great study name if it's going to be impactful. And the, you know, Jonathan Lim at the time had, had named it Star Trek. It originally stood for Study Targeting Alk Ross Track. And you know, the, the, the phase one was Star Trek. The phase two was Star Trek two. And then the yes. pediatric, right, was Star Trek Next Generation. I mean, I think yes, that's right. It's just fantastic, very clever. But they were really passionate. I really enjoyed those studies. I really liked working with that group. Yeah, me too. I, I have to say they, they, were, um, they were a can-do group of people. That's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, you know, there's no serendipity certainly is, is part of all, of all of these successes, but there's no question that a lot of great research has come out of Australia. Um, are there any unique challenges to treating thoracic cancers in Australia? Yeah, I think, um, look, you know, uh, the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest challenge is access. I think having access to you know, whatever is on the, on the horizon is always a little bit slower for us. So a lot of the, um, the challenges we face are knowing that there's a compound that's active. And crizotinib is a really good example. Um, crizotinib in ALK-positive lung cancer, there was a long lag between the, uh, the initial amazing results of the phase one study to the phase three, well, the phase two and the phase three study showing significant benefit you know, the phase three study was led by my colleague, um, Ben Solomon. And even then to actually get the drug funded on our pharmaceutical benefits scheme still took, I think it was something like four or five years after that study was published. So that sort of access has always been uh, an issue. But I have to say that things have changed quite dramatically more recently. And I think uh, our governments have really come to realise how important access is and we've had an unprecedented number of therapies gain access to our, um, our pharmaceutical benefit scheme, which basically means the drug is, uh, is funded free of charge. So having that access is critical. One of the other things that, that is proving to be a challenge more recently is that our, our pharmaceutical benefit scheme only allows us to use immunotherapy once in a person's uh, lung cancer journey. And that can be, you know, from if you use Devalumab in the um, stage three context, you can't then use immunotherapy if the cancer progresses and they become uh, stage four. So that, that sort of thing really is, um, is difficult and, and is challenging. I mean, I, th I think it's great that um, our governments are usually fairly open to discussion. So, you know, we are, we are able to approach them and say this is, you know, this really doesn't fit with how we manage lung cancer. But, you know, currently that's, that's our current context. So we, we're, we're always, um, we can't just be data-driven. We have to also be pragmatic about uh, what things we have access to at any one time. And lastly, and I think this is a worldwide phenomenon, you know, there's a massive stigma for lung cancer and there's a lot of patients who don't come forward or who, um, you know, don't want to have treatments or 
are um, accepting of, of you know very minimal sort of interventions, and that's something that we really we really need to drive to change. You know, people are people just feel guilty that they develop lung cancer and they just accept that whatever sort of therapies uh, are offered that that's all there is. And um, I think that's that's certainly something that needs to change, particularly with uh, things like uh, you know the the ability to to next gen sequence and look for greater molecular targets. Uh, a lot of people aren't doing that. Um, we tend to look at ALKROS1 and EGFR and that's it. And, you know, the other drivers like KRAS and MET and, you know, NTRAC, it's only the larger centres that are really sort of pushing that. And I think uh, as time goes on, these are the sorts of um, things that need to change, particularly, you know, things like KRAS, which we now know has a, a very effective uh, targeted therapy. When I think of, of care in the U.S., and there are certainly a lot of geographic differences and in incidents and in, in treatment and experience, it's got to be even more so in, in Australia. I mean, I, I got to visit a, a couple of times and, and we've met and, you know, in Victoria and New South Wales, I found things were very similar to, to the U.S., but how is cancer care in sort of Western Australia and the Northern Territories? It must be quite different. Yeah, you, I mean, those sort of uh, uh, population disparities um, certainly change things. So I think one of, the, one of the challenges is, you know, what happens in a uh, tertiary or a quaternary centre um, is very, very different to what happens in a more regional setting. And, you know, Australia does have a, a large regional population and they're often serviced by, uh, you know, one uh, medical oncologist um, who's treating everything, you know, lung cancer, breast cancer, bowel cancer. And it is very hard for them, I think, to, you know, to be aware of, uh, you know, some of the new trials, some of the new therapies that are available. And that is a challenge. I think the care of um, thoracic um, malignancies uh, in regional areas are certainly um, different. I mean, even if you just consider access to surgical services are, are, you know, majorly different between uh, the cities and, uh, and the regional areas. That can lead to people saying, look, you know, you do have this, this lung cancer. It's going to be a big operation. You'll have to go to, the, to, you know, a big city to have that operation. You know, do you really want to do that? You know, it can, it can alter how, um, how people are, are managed. Part, part, of the, part of the solution to that, and I think many hospitals uh, in our, certainly in Victoria, do do regional clinics where, particularly for surgical services, you know, patients are able to be seen and then funneled into um, a surgical clinic in, the, uh, in one of the central uh, hospitals. Because as, as you know, the outcomes are, are certainly better if you're being managed by someone who's doing that type of surgery uh, consistently. But it is still a, it is still a big channel, challenge, I think. Um, probably not so much for Western Australia, but certainly for the Northern Territory. And our hospital does do um, an outreach clinic to the Northern Territory and they bring patients that need surgery back to Melbourne for that reason. But, you know, you, you can imagine for every person that you pick up doing that, there are probably quite a few people who, who are lost. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think you'll agree in saying we've, we've come off a pretty unusual year as well. How did the, the pandemic affect, you know, your practice, lung cancer care 
in Melbourne, but also just in Australia overall? I think um, so. In uh, Australia, was well, we have been somewhat uh, uh, lucky, I guess, to have not had outbreaks and mortality on, on the scale that um, that we've you know, watched with horror occurring in Europe and in the US. Our government, our local governments in particular, um, enforce fairly robust lockdowns fairly early in the piece. In Victoria, um, where I'm from. Uh, we had a very long lockdown over our last uh, winter into spring, um, and that really caused uh, caused havoc with uh, managing patients. As I'm sure, I'm sure you have uh, uh, many stories to tell in this area as well, Stephen. But for us, it you know it was it was quite uh, it was quite different. I think in the rest of the rest of the country. Um, those challenges weren't to the same degree as what we faced in Victoria because we really had a, a very a large outbreak. There were multiple deaths, particularly uh, in in nursing homes uh, and in supported accommodation areas, and that was devastating. And that meant uh, a lot of our patients were too scared to come to hospital. They were too scared to to have clinical reviews, they were too scared to have uh, interventions. So I think up front it was it was certainly challenging. Over time it got it got a bit easier. There were some positives. Um, one of the positive things that came out of all of this was uh, our ability to use telehealth more effectively. There were people, you know, and I think we see this all the time. There are people who you don't really need to drag into a clinic you know, who you could do telehealth consultations with, particularly, you know, if you're on a targeted therapy um, and all you're doing is you're looking at um, a blood parameter and making sure there's very minimal toxicity from the targeted therapy, you probably don't need to bring that person into clinic. And that was really useful. Our government allowed us to build telehealth consultations and that changed you know, pretty much overnight we suddenly had this ability to, to run telehealth clinics and a lot of our patients were doing telehealth. It caused quite a few challenges. I, for the very first time ever, I think, I, I, uh, I've treated people, I, I treated a patient with single agent pembrolizumab who was PDL one high um, that I'd never met. I'd never actually physically wow. seen him. I saw him over the telehealth line. He was too scared to come in. Yeah, you know, so I could see him, but I didn't physically see him. And you know how, how important it is to physically see people and engage, you know, how well they are. And, uh, you know, I think that was right at the peak of our pandemic and it was, um, it was quite, uh, you know, the challenge with lung cancer is you can't sit around and just wait a couple of weeks. You have to start. So um, this guy was, uh, was, you know, petrified of coming into the hospital and, it was, it was very hard to actually get him a, a booking to be seen. I, I, so we started, but I, I ended up seeing him after his first dose, which was, uh, uh, which is very different. <laughs> yeah, to, to say the least. But it's a tough balance there because, you know, you, you get the hesitance to come in. We know from a lot of work that's done that patients with lung cancer are a little more prone to more severe complications with COVID. But yeah. as you mentioned, it's also a disease that does not accommodate delay. Yeah, indeed, and uh, and and that's I, th I think it'll be telling 
uh, looking back at the uh, the statistics as to to what actually happens to our patients with lung cancer, because I suspect there'll be quite a few more who were diagnosed at a later stage. We don't really have those data um, yet. I'm sure uh, in the US that will be uh, forthcoming uh, on a much larger scale to to what we're seeing. But I think the you know that those the lung cancer itself is is as you say you know there's there's a, a an urgency and um, that need to really get on is is really important. One of the other things I think that was really challenging, uh, and again I'm sure you've seen this, uh, you know, is, is people who end up coming into hospital and unfortunately succumbing to their illness, but not being able to have you know friends and relatives be with them in in those uh, those last moments and. I think that was uh, quite traumatic for many families and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't wish that on anyone. And I hope that, uh, hope that we don't end up back in, those, uh, in, in such a situation. No, I, I agree. I agree completely. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom, you've been very generous with your time, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk at least a little about your extracurricular activities. Okay. You know, this year we've had less travel. We've had a lot more time at home. And some of us have cultivated our interests outside the hospital, baking bread, gardening. Uh, you've really taken it to, to another level with music. You know, you've recently released a single under the name Mayhem Tom. It's called Reach Out. It's on Spotify, Apple Music. I read a review in Beat Magazine that described the song as funneling existential drama into dreamy indie rock. A very nice review. Tom, this is kind of out of the blue for me. I had no idea. How long have you been doing this? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. It's, it's been such an adventure, actually. Um, it be, probably began pre-pandemic. I think uh, a few years ago, uh, probably end of 2016, 2017, I think I, I was going through a, a, a phase of, uh, of burnout. You know, I'd, I'd never experienced before and, you know, I'd heard people talking about it, but uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't really realize that that's what was happening. And at that point, I uh, actually started writing again. Um, I, I'd played in a band uh, previously. That band was called Electric Mayhem. Uh-huh. And so that's where Mayhem Tom comes from. <laughs> Electric Mayhem was the band out of uh, the Muppets. It was Dr. Tooth and Electric Mayhem. Oh, that's right. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's uh, I actually electric... It first started when I was trying to set up an email address many, many, many years ago. And I tried Tom.John and Tommy.John and Tom underscore John and nothing. They were all taken. And uh, so I thought, oh, well, I'll just try it. You know, I think I must have had a, an electric mayhem poster on my wall at the time. So I tried Mayhem Tom and there were no Mayhem Tom. So I thought, there we oh, go. Well, that, that, that sticks. <laughs> So uh, that's where Mayhem Tom comes from. And uh, I, uh, I kept it because I thought, oh, well, it's, it's still unique. Yeah. <laughs> there could be a reason for that. <laughs> um, it doesn't really make that much sense. But, uh, well, now um, it does. <laughs> now it does, yes, that's right. And it was interesting, um, you know, uh, going, going back into, into writing. So back, back in the day, uh, Electric Mayhem was sort of the um, – it ended up being my – my income uh, in med school, you know, we, we, we had several residencies. Um, and uh, so, you know, every Thursday, Friday, n- Saturday night, we were playing. Um, and uh, that was my income. It was, you know, a massive part of my life. 
and then you know as uh, as I started working uh, as a doctor I I rapidly realized I couldn't continue down that path so um, everything stopped and it you know I didn't think anything of it I thought oh well that's that it stopped but then going through this sort of um, period of uh, of burnout I think I I went back to back to my roots if you will I think everyone has their thing as you say some people like baking bread and some people uh, went back into into art. I've seen some amazing uh, things that have happened during during lockdown, in particular. And music's always been a, a place of sort of solace and comfort for me. I started off as a as a violinist um, during school, and and then the band after that. And um, so you know, a, a lot of my a lot of what I've done has revolved around music, and so it was great to come back to it. And Interestingly, you know, once I started and once I tapped into, it's almost like tapping into a part of your brain, you know, once it opened, it was like floodgates. It was just, yeah, there were, there were a lot of things that came out and a lot of, um, you know, before I knew it, I had sort of an album of songs, um, uh, which uh, is really exciting to be able to get down and record and hopefully uh, release shortly. You know, can talk a little bit about the music, maybe describe it to the listeners. I hear a little Radiohead maybe, or, or maybe a little Guster. I don't know if you remember that band. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're spot on, Stephen. I was, um, I'm, uh, I'm amazed I'm, I'm so transparent. <laughs> Radio, Radiohead's a big one for me. Um, they, they, certainly, they, have, they would have to be the biggest influence um, of my you know, more current uh, you know, musical side of things. When when I was in in the original band, it was um, things like U two and Dinosaur Junior, Smashing Pumpkins, that sort of um, genre of music. But more recently, it's been you know wordsmiths like Paul Kelly is a is a local uh, artist in in Australia who's an amazing wordsmith, or John Prine from the US, Bob Dylan, like those sorts of um, wordsmiths. I I absolutely love. Um, and then more recently, I got sort of stuck, sucked into The National, which is a, an amazing US band who, who write really sort of simple but um, emotive um, music, very strong lyrics, repetitive themes. There's a band Blood called Blood Ohio. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, like Blood Buzz Ohio. That, that's, you know, that and um, their, their more recent stuff has really become a lot more sort of uh, emotive and you know, less, probably less accessible, but, you know, that, that I guess is, is part of the, part of the, uh, the interest for me. I totally see yeah. that actually. And, you know, it's, it's a great sound. It's really great production, but as, as I listened to it a couple of times before we talk, pretty moving, powerful lyrics. Um, you mentioned the wordsmiths that you're influenced by. Do you write all the music and the lyrics yourself? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Stephen. Um, yeah, it, it's still very, it's still very um, hard for me because I, you know, when when you write a song and you put it out there, you really put yourself out there. So it's 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 a very different um, uh, thing to like, you know, presenting a trial or you know, presenting you know data. This is like so so personal. And yes, I I, I write all the the words and I write all the music and I have a great um, team of people around me. Um, I've a producer who's who's amazing um my one of the old uh one of my old mates in the band uh is also playing bass with me and helping with a lot of the arrangements 
I think uh, all of the, oh, you know, having, having a group of people um, certainly helps develop the music, uh, but the actual bass foundation is all me and the lyrics are all me. And it really comes, you know, it comes from not just, uh, you know, the lyrics, are, you, you may have noticed, I tend to be fairly dark and gloomy, <laughs> which, which you can probably blame on, on Radiohead. <laughs> You know, very sort of similar. I, I I actually do like tapping into sort of emotive elements, and I think that's what that's what feeds the um, the, the lyrics. I I don't I don't sit down and plan them. Um, and I think you know it's cliche. I think a lot of people say this when you, when they're writing music. You know, it just sort of seems to come and, and flow from somewhere. And so that's sort of and I guess where where I'm at and where the you know what. What we deal with day to day is existentialist crises, and you know they they're constant in our work. And it's uh, and, and what we do, and I, I keep saying this to the trainees going through, what we do is really abnormal. You know, we get glimpses into people's lives that are you know, at the absolute lowest, um, and you know how people deal with that is very different. And even though uh, for a lot of time, I thought that that didn't affect me. I've realized, you know, when I was going through that period of burnout, that it did affect me. And how can it not affect you? You know, when you're dealing with such life and death situations and, you know, you're, you're seeing people at their rawest. And so that inevitably has flowed into the music. So in a way, the, the work you're doing really influences the music and, and maybe vice versa as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think the, um, I think, you know, what, what we deal with um, day to day inevitably does, you know, come back into, into how we think, into how we, how we manage situations, you know, what our, uh, our emotional sort of response is to things. I, I, I think when I was going through a, a real sort of period of burnout, some people describe it as feeling that you know they lose all feeling you know they they don't so all of a sudden they don't they don't care so much about you know the person that's in front of them or you know what's happening uh, in other people's lives i actually felt the reverse i actually felt like i was being sucked into people's lives a lot more and i was feeling a lot more emo- emotional and emotive about you know what i was um, seeing day to day and also you know what was happening you know around me um, you know in in other other elements of life. And I think those sorts of, those sorts of things really inevitably will, will feed this. And I, I think that the music really gave me an outlet. I found it really therapeutic being able to, to write again, um, to write music. And then, you know, the words that sort of came out um, were largely darker themes probably because of that. But there were also some happy tracks on the album. <laughs> I, I don't think we talk about that enough. I mean, just having that outlet because that, you know, that emotional journey that each patient goes through, we're, we're there with them. And, you know, yeah. I, I get that feeling every time I, I review a scan that, that doesn't look the way we want it to. And, and you relive that many times a day. And, you know, it's, it's, it's appropriate, I think, to acknowledge that. I, I can't agree with you more. I think we, I think we, we, when we, the way I was taught, it was, you know, the patient's the one with the problem, very house of God, you know, that's, you know, that we, we need to be distanced from it. But uh, I don't know about you, but increasingly um, for us, 
you know, particularly when you're, it used to be with lung cancer, you know, you would start uh, managing a person and literally within 12 months, they wouldn't be coming back to your clinic. Now it's years and years and you get to know them and their lives and um, how can you not feel that, you know, when, when something happens to that person? Um, and I don't think we should be teaching people to ignore that. Um, I think we do need to recognise it. Um, and I think it is really important to have, uh, to have an outlet, to, you know, to recognise that that's, that's a thing. You know, you need to do your own thing. You, you definitely can't be completely sucked into it because, you know, then, then you, I think you, you're at risk of really spiralling out of control. You do need to have perspective. And so for me, this was, a, this was a great sort of therapeutic outlet. And I, I think everyone has their own ways of dealing with it. Tom, uh, can you tell our listeners where they can find your music? Yeah, so um, at the moment, uh, there's just this one single um, that's out there. Uh, it's on Spotify, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, and iTunes. The album is currently in pre-production. We're getting into the studio in a month, and I'm hoping we'll, uh, we'll be starting to you know, release some of the, the tracks slowly uh, through the end of the year. But uh, yeah, pre-production is actually really exciting. Just you know, fiddling through everything, and as I said, it's it's a it's a very um, personal journey, and you know, exposing, basically having you know other people in the team listen to the to the tracks and say, oh, I really like this, or I really don't like that, and it can be uh, it can be quite challenging. But it's a it's a great thing to go to and go through. And as I said, I, I think it's a it's a great outlet for me. Yeah, I, I look forward to hearing the album. I look forward to a live performance, maybe at the next uh, Toga meeting. Um, <laughs> yes. This has been a, it's been really great catching up with you, Tom. But we are at time. Uh, yeah. I kind of hate to put you on the spot here, but maybe you can close out the episode with a song. Yeah, I'd absolutely, absolutely love to. So I, um, because a lot of the a lot of the tracks on this album are quite dark. I, uh, I thought I'd try and pick something that was uh, a little less dark. This is a, a track, um, well, an, an acoustic version of a track on, on the forthcoming album. But it's, yeah, it's, it's actually written about, uh, written about my wife. And, yeah, I hope, hope you enjoy it. Thank you, Tom. And, and thanks, to everyone, for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. I hope you'll tune in on the first and third Mondays of each month to give us a listen. And with that, here is Mayhem Tom, or Dr. Tom John, playing us out. Thanks, everybody. I thought I knew you. I thought it was inferred. Then you surprised me. Love me more than I deserve. It's a lesson in love. It's truth can be intense. Beyond all feeling, emotion, sense. And I hear these words spoken in youth with angst. Its strength is more powerful now I'm middle-aged past. All the bullets that life shoots at you, the things that cloud over your love. And in my dream I thought I was flying in reality. I was falling And in my dream I thought
left for the night But in reality You cradled me so tight I looked towards others I thought would be the same But when we spoke last night It was clearer on one page It still amazes me The unconditionality you retain I see we're both changed In my dream I thought I was flying But in reality But in reality, you cradle me.